according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn your Bibles as we get started to Mark chapter 9. We have parallels in Matthew 17 and in Luke 9, but the longest development is in Mark 9, and that's where we'll spend most of our time. And uh, one week ago, we got through the Matthew account. We can review the uh, outline from what we've already looked at, and we can move on and gain some new ground here this morning. Before we do any of that, though, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship. Uh, Not everyone just came from a prayer meeting. Some of you came from Austin traffic, and that typically requires extra prayer. So let's take time for silent prayer, make sure that we are in fellowship and uh, humble before the authority of God's Word, shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we rejoice this morning. You've been faithful. You've provided us with two prayer meetings this morning, Father, and I want to thank You for that. Father, for the time now set before us, we rejoice to have the opportunity to assemble together and receive instruction, the opportunity to study to show ourselves approved before Your uh, face. Father, we are bound to be uh, in Your presence. We may be accountable this very day to give an account before the judgment seat. So, Father, uh, we ask that You would implant within us a sense of urgency and uh, a recognition of our accountability. And Father, most of all, humble us under the authority of your word. We thank you in Jesus Christ, most precious and holy name. Amen. All right, this is episode 50 in the Galilean ministry, and uh, we are making use of a harmony of the Gospels uh, by which some of the episodes are not exactly titled in the way that I would title them, uh, this being one example. Uh, The epileptic heel, I believe this incident has nothing to do with epilepsy as we've been examining it. It is not a medical condition. It is, in fact, a demonic uh, condition, a spiritual battle. And with the demon cast out, the uh, physical uh, effects are then uh, alleviated. But we uh, are, as I said, using a a harmony that is... uh, It is what it is, and we'll make use of it best as we can. Someday, perhaps, I'll write my own harmony, or I'll go back and actually retitle the ones that I found in the process of doing this. Um, I'll I'll retitle them a little bit better, perhaps. All right. In the process of this, we've come down through point four, looking at the sun and examining Matthew's details. We're going to move on this morning under point C and D to examine Mark and Luke's details, and then we will move past the sun to actually examine the disciples and the Lord and his frustration and the things that come after that. Let's just read through, though. Verse 14, when they came back to the disciples, that is, they were up on the mountain of transfiguration, Peter, James, and John. They were up there with the Lord. They observed the uh, Lord transfigured. They saw a glorified Moses and a glorified Elijah. And uh, the Lord warned them not to, uh, to tell anyone to keep that quiet. When they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately, when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. We're going to discuss this. We're going to discuss their inability because they had the authority. And we're going to describe, or they're going to ask, you know, how come this wasn't working? (laughs) And uh, we'll go through the details here together. But the conditions here have the appearance of epilepsy. And yet, as I said, it's not a medical situation. It is a spiritual demonic battle that with the expulsion of the demon, the uh, physical condition was restored. Um. Verse 19, and he answered them and said, O unbelieving generation. In both uh, Matthew and Luke, it's unbelieving and perverted generation. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him. When he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion. See, it's not a medical condition. It is spiritual. There is an unclean spirit or a spirit of wickedness that is indwelling and possessing this boy. 
And in recognition of God the Son, the Savior of the world, the Spirit reacts. Throws him into convulsion. Falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. That's our only clue as to the age of this boy. We don't know his exact age. He is called a boy, and yet he is no longer in, uh, in childhood. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if, you can't, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. One of the greatest prayers in all the Bible right there. I do believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he, re- he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out, and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. Now the question is, was he actually dead or not? Uh, it is interesting. I think not, but still the term raised him is uh, significant enough to allow us to at least ask the question and ponder it. When he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately, why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. All right. In the outline to this point, point one, this event features the inability of the disciples to cast out a demon and provide for the healing of an individual. This uh, is fairly well known, actually, uh, because uh, this is a case where a miracle did not work. Or this was a case where it seems that God's power was insufficient. Or somehow there was a problem. There was a breakdown. They were accustomed to casting out demons. They had authority to cast out demons. They had authority to heal. They were evidently accustomed to their powers working, as it were. And now all of a sudden it doesn't work. And you wonder, well, how does that happen? So uh, we'll discuss this. It also provides the most thorough and descriptive account for in-depth studies on demonology. We actually have a lot of details here that are lacking in other accounts, and we can uh, learn a lot about every passage that describes demonism or demon possession, and uh, such as the incident with uh, Legion and all the other cases where it takes place. I think this passage gives us the most thorough and descriptive account. The title is unfortunate because it's demonization that is at work has nothing to do with the uh, neurological condition of epilepsy. Epilepsy, as modern medicine understands it, is an electronic issue. It's a matter in the brain in terms of the electrical signals and and things that happen there. All right. While Peter, James, and John were up on the Mount of Transfiguration, Andrew and the remaining disciples encountered a spiritual battle of their own. And this is something we want to be mindful of when the spiritual leadership is away. For instance, on a conference or on vacation or whatever else, we want to recognize that there could be battles that will, that will uh, uh, be waged in their absence. And that's what's happening here. In fact, there's the demon and then there's the scribes. And you wonder which one's worse <laughs> when it comes right down to it. There was a demon resistant to their casting out and there were scribes resistant to their teaching. And the argument here I find to be rather interesting because their, their true issue is not with them. The scribes are taking issue with Jesus. So why do the scribes not take their issue with Jesus? Why do they, in Jesus' absence, start arguing with the disciples? See, what's the point in that? What's the purpose in that? Other than to sow discord or to raise questions or to somehow plant seeds of of, uh, discontent or malcontent or whatever kind of content that's there. Find it interesting. And their surprise at his return is also interesting. And the more I ponder this, the more I think it raises more questions than it answers. But they are truly surprised that he's coming back. And uh, in the argument here, when they saw him, um, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And you wonder, why were they so amazed? Did they think he wasn't coming back? Did they have an indication that he was gone? All right. Now, we don't know. All I'm saying is that this opens more questions. Um, But have you ever walked into a to a room or a conversation and then all of a sudden it became real obvious that they weren't expecting you and that probably they were even talking about you at the point where you walked in? All right. 
I think we probably have a little bit of that here. And just the, 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 the I think it's Thalmazzo there. I think it's the amazement being described. And you wonder, why is it they were not expecting him to come back? Or uh, was something supposed to happen on that mountain when they went up to the mountain? Obviously, something did happen. There was uh, the transfiguration event. There was something that took place. We've discussed whether that was going forward in time or coming back in time or somehow uh, being outside of time or whatever else was taking place. But was there something else that may have been uh, intended for that mountaintop? See, there were a lot of uh, demonic attacks and a lot of other things. And Scripture records many of them, does not record many others of them. And uh, and I, I don't know, I've seen a lot of murder mysteries over the years. And you just know <laughs> when, when someone has a, a, a telltale or a giveaway like this, like, uh, oh, we weren't expecting you back, that, uh, that they were in on some kind of plot. They were aware of something that was supposed to be happening and uh, seem to be rather surprised that uh, that the Lord has returned. All right. So I guess that's all I'll say on that other than to say uh, it's one of the things I'm going to file away for future question when I get to heaven to find out why were they so shocked when he came back? You know, it's not like the Lord was in the habit of abandoning his disciples that, uh, you know, that he was going to run off with Peter, James and John and, and start something new with just those three. No, he was coming back. He had every intention of coming back. So why were they so amazed? And uh, hard to say. All right. I'm, I'm, well, I'll let that go. Okay. Thirdly, like the Syrophoenician woman, the father of the demoniac boy makes his appeal on the basis of mercy. And he even goes beyond mercy. He takes the mercy approach, which the Syrophoenician woman also did. But later on, he switches to pity. He says, take pity on my boy. And, uh, and that was a step beyond what the Syrophoenician woman did. Which takes us now to point four on the son. He is called a son, a huios. He is called the only begotten, the monogenes. That is the one of a kind, unique son. All right. We have, thanks to King James, Old English, Elizabethan English, we have only begotten. All right. And... Uh, which is unfortunate, monogenes speaks of one of a kind. It speaks of a unique. Not uh, from ganao to give birth, but from genos, kind. And it's a term that will come up at the end of this section as well when he says to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. When he describes the nature of this deaf and mute spirit, the nature of this malevolent uh, diabolical power that's indwelling this boy, he describes him as a as either a unique or a particular kind of malevolent spirit different from other kinds of of malevolent spirits and that's what we have here in a compound of ganas we have monogenes one of a kind all right important that we recognize that we have passages that speak of isaac as the monogenes the one of a kind the unique son now abraham had other sons isaac was not the only begotten there was Ishmael and there were the seven sons of Keturah. So he had at least eight brothers. He was not only begotten. He was not an only child, but he was certainly unique. He was the son of promise. He was the miracle child born of the 90-year-old mother, see. And so, uh, you know, Abraham, of course, was the father of all of them. And he was just as uh, miraculous at 100 to be having all those babies. But uh, the birth of Isaac was unique in the sense of, of Sarah's age. And so forth. Hagar and uh, Keturah were clearly much younger. All right. Anyway, so monogenes is not only begotten. Monogenes is one of a kind or unique. And I think some of the Bibles, the new Holman Standard Bible, has actually made the step to actually change from only begotten to one of a kind or one and only. The, the unique nature of the sonship of Jesus Christ. When it comes to Jesus Christ, is he only begotten? Well, in the sense that you and I are also begotten of the Father. We have the new birth, the birth from above, the, the spiritual parentage. We are sons of the Father and uh, daughters of the Father and so forth. He is not only begotten in the sense of our own salvation and our own redemption, but he is clearly unique. He is the one of a kind. There is none like him, the eternal, sinless, perfect Son of God, Son of Man, God-Man, Jesus Christ. All right. Now, in Matthew's details under point B... We went through quite a bit, and we're ready for point C on Mark's details. The only thing I'll 
leave you with in terms of Matthew's details is that the vocabulary here is centered on the moon, all right? And the term lunatic, I, I enjoy the term lunatic quite a bit. We ran out of time because I was expounding upon lunatics last week. Uh, he was not epileptic. He was lunatic, all right? Um, the Greeks had a word for epileptic. And because they had a word for epileptic, we have a word for epileptic. <laughs> Our word for epileptic is theirs that we brought into English, epileptikos. And we bring it into English as epileptic. Um, it's pretty hilarious. It's in, in asking the question, you know, did the Greeks have a word for epileptic? It's, it's, it's self-contradicting. I mean, it's self-defining. It's just hilarious. Do the Greeks have a word for epileptic? Well, yeah, it is their word. We're just simply, it's like asking, do the Spanish have a word for taco? Well, yeah. As a matter of fact, it is their word. We're simply borrowing it in our language, right? It's like uh, the problem that France is having. And then they need a free enterprise market system. That's their problem is all the socialism. They need some free enterprise. And, you know, if only the French had a word for entrepreneur, they wouldn't be in the mess that they're in. Right? It's the same concept. All right. The term here is seleniadzomai moonstruck. And uh, selene is the noun for moon and the issues here. What powers are there at work when the moon is full? We don't totally understand it, but the scripture does describe it. The scripture does describe the creatures of the night, the spiritual denizens of darkness that actually have power in the realm of darkness. All right. Likewise, there is a spiritual realm of diabolical forces that actually have a power that waxes and wanes. Okay? Now, I'm not trying to get sensational. I'm not trying to get all spooky on Halloween. <laughs> all right? But these are the forces that do have powers in particular seasons, in particular times. And this is a high holy day or unholy day for those forces of darkness. went into some of the secular Greek and some of the classical Greek. This is your term for epilepsy. Epileptikos right here. E-P-I. Get to yellow. E-P-I-L-E-P-T-I-K-O-S. Epileptikos. Like I say, it's a Greek word. We use it in English, but it's a Greek word. And even by the first century, in the second century, even by the time of Rufus, Rufus of Ephesus wrote an excellent treatment, a uh, description of epilepsy, and he made the distinction between epilepsy and uh, the, uh, the lunatic condition here, recognizing that epilepsy is a purely physical understanding, purely physical, purely medical, must be treated as such. The English lunatic corresponds to the moon, Latin lunaticus, of course, luna, Latin term for moon. And it is preferable to epileptic medical terminology. So let's just keep it as a lunatic. He says, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic. That's the uh, phrase there in Matthew 17, 15. All right, he is a lunatic. Now, we can call him the lunatic, but let's keep in mind, if we call him a lunatic, let's separate the idea of lunatic from crazy. Okay. Because, again, we have this word association in English that if somebody's a lunatic, that he's crazy, he's nuts, he's insane, he's lost his mind. Okay? Let's separate that for a moment. Because intrinsically, lunatic relates to the moon, to the, the spiritual powers, the, the demonic powers that are strengthened with the moon. It does not have to do with a person's mental health or sanity or, or lack thereof. All right. Let's get to Mark's details now. Skip on ahead through this. Let's get to there. Mark's details. Mark 9, verses 17 and 18. Keying in on this, one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit, which makes him mute. That he actually, the son still existed, but the son was no longer in control. The possession the active agent controlling this son's body was no longer the son, it was the spirit. Whenever it seizes him, it's a violent possession in terms of, of uh, the, the control that it puts the boy under. 
and it slams him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. You know, think about the way our bodies are designed and the way our bodies reject things. I mean, consider the way we fight infections or the way our bodies fight uh, foreign objects that get somehow implanted or inserted or somehow, you know, if you're punctured or whatever else happens. Or uh, organs that get, uh, that get transplanted and, and, and whatnot. Uh, things that get inserted into the body, the body has a natural, it's designed to reject such things. And so uh, you recognize that in, in a lot of cases, not just here, but in a lot of cases throughout the gospel record, possession was not a pleasant experience by the, uh, the human being involved. I think the frenzy that drove the swine into running into the sea is indicative of the, the unnatural condition of uh, the physical realm being uh, possessed, occupied, seized by the, uh, the spiritual forces. All right, the phrase possessed with a spirit. Literally having a mute spirit. The boy himself was not mute. The boy could speak normally until he was seized, until the spirit took control of his body. We have here the participle ekanta. And ekanta is a participle from echo to have. To have, to hold, to uh, maintain in one's possession, we would say. If um, anything that you have that's in your control is in your possession, you have sovereignty over it, it's yours. And it's the idea of possession, it's the idea of property, it's the idea of ownership. Pneuma is our word for spirit, could be a, any spirit, human spirit, God the Holy Spirit, um, a benevolent spirit, a good spirit, or an evil spirit. In this case, it is a spirit alalan. From laleo to speak, alalan is an unspeaking spirit. It's not that the boy was mute. It's that the boy was in the possession of and by a non-speaking spirit. Alalan then becomes the adjective defining pneuma, the noun for spirit. So literally, we would say having a mute spirit. Having a mute spirit. Possessed with a spirit. Or as the New American Standard translates it here, uh, possessed with a spirit, which makes him mute. I think that's a little bit verbose and uh, even a bit interpretive as a matter there. Uh, the spirit himself was mute. Therefore, uh, when the spirit was in control, there was no talking. We even see when the Lord rebukes him, not only is he mute, he's also deaf. You start to recognize the reason why the disciples were trying to cast him out and it wasn't working. Well, he was deaf. <laughs> Couldn't hear. Okay? It's kind of like, did you know that when you rip all six legs off the grasshoppers, uh, grasshoppers uh, that they're, they're, they become deaf? Did you know that? All right. Anyway, it's a, it's a goofy joke that goes back to first grade, I think, when I was a little kid. Anyway, so this kind can only go out by prayer. If the, if the demon itself is deaf and mute, then just simply ordering it out, what's that going to do if I can't hear you? All right. Possessed with a spirit. And then the idea of having. Uh, we dealt with this a little bit in terms of the the gifts and ministries that we have, because we have uh, gifts, we have ministries, we are in possession of such things. Likewise, if anyone does not have love, the same concept. How do you have love? Is it tangible? Is it, uh, you know, can you, can you stick it in your pocket? Is it something like a pen where you have it and it's yours and you can, you can stash it in a pocket or keep it somewhere or misplace it? Having Love, 1 Corinthians 13, uh, having a spirit. So some of these are studies we've done recently, and hopefully you've got the notes on that. Now, secondly, we observe that the spirit seizes him. Catalambano seizes him, takes him down. Kata is a prefix that generally has a downward 
motion. Ana is upward, kata is downward. The spirit seizes him. Kata Lombano, number 2638. And I think that this is not only vivid for the, the illustration here, but also um, I think helps us to understand certain things beyond the idea of demon possession. But to hold something down, to take something down. Lombano is to receive, to take. And uh, once you take, then you have. But to take down, okay? Like my old law enforcement days. <laughs> the takedown maneuver when dealing with uh, an inmate. All right, Mark 9:18. We can relate this over to John 8, verses 3 and 4. Remember the John 8 passage. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. All right, caught a lambano. They caught her. In the very act, we're told. They set her in front of the court. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught She has been caught in adultery in the very act. So, does that add a little bit more vividness to demon possession? The idea of being caught. The idea of being taken. The idea of being... Um, caught by surprise or overwhelmed or taken down. Still in John, chapter 12 and verse 35. Another illustration. Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not, catalambano, overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he goes. See, unless you want to be overwhelmed overtaken, taken down. The idea is, is that when you have been catalambanoed, you're no longer in control of what's going on. This woman caught in adultery. She was catalambanoed. They laid hold of her and dragged her into court. All right? While you're walking in darkness, uh, so that the, or walking the light so that the darkness does not overwhelm you. We don't want to be overwhelmed by any circumstances or details of life. Philippians 3 now, here's an interesting thing, because this is the nature of uh, Philippians 3, verses 12 and 13. Three times in these two verses. And I think it gives a little bit more vividness. Like I say, not just for the idea of demon possession, but it gives a lot more vividness to uh, this wonderful passage of comfort. See, Paul is in desire of uh, victory in the Christian way of life. And he says uh, that he is, uh, he's writing off everything that human beings might count as being of value. He says, no, I count that as but loss for the sake of Christ. He says, more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And that the daily intimacy of the Christian way of life is each day we're learning more and more and more and more about Jesus than we knew yesterday and the day before. Tomorrow I'll know more than I did today. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Now, you say a lot of this took place in the moment of his salvation. That's true. And yet Paul was constantly looking forward, looking forward, and not considering that he was there yet. He said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Now, clearly, Paul knew the Lord. He knew the Lord. He was saved. And from the moment of his salvation, he knew the Lord. But he continued to know the Lord more and more and more and more through each day of his earthly life. Kind of like, how well do you know your spouse? I hope you know them better than you did on your wedding day. Chances are you do. <laughs> All right. If not, then probably something's a little bit wrong there in the marriage. <laughs> okay. It probably didn't take a whole lot of time. A little bit after the, the wedding day, and you start to learn things that uh, you didn't know. And you thought, hmm. Maybe I should have known that ahead of time. <laughs> All right. But oh well, we're married and here we go. So, no, you learn more and more and more and more as you develop a greater intimacy each and every day. It's the same thing with our salvation. I mean, truly, when you're saved, you're, you're literally ignorant. You know nothing. 
All you know is, is the, the crucified Christ and your salvation. Then you've got to begin growing in grace and knowledge. You've got to begin to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on. See, if we get happy, you know, fat, dumb, and happy, lazy, content with our Christian walk, we're in trouble. Because however much we've grown, however much we, we've learned, wherever we are, we're not where we're supposed to be. We're not where we're going to be. We're not where He's taking us. So if we uh, decide that, okay, we're content with where we are, I've put in my time, I've paid my dues, or blah, 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 whatever. If we get complacent in the Christian walk, see, then uh, we're in trouble. I love the point. By the time he writes Philippians, Paul had already written a dozen books of the Bible, or eight, nine books of the Bible by this point, planted all these churches, trained all these men, traveled all these miles, done all these things, far more than any of us have ever done, certainly. And uh, he says, you know what? I don't count that I've attained anything yet. But I press on so that I may cut a lambano. That I may lay hold of that. And, and now you see the vividness of lay hold, the vividness of cut a lambano, is that you want to apprehend it, take it down, possess it, control it. Not let it go. Like this woman caught in adultery. You grab a hold of her and you drag her into court. Or the, the boy seized by the Spirit. The Spirit got a hold of him and Starts throwing them around into fires and water and everything else. The idea of laying hold is that you have taken firm control and you're not letting it go. That I may lay hold of that for which also I was catalambanoed by Christ Jesus. Paul said, you know what? Jesus Christ got a hold of me. And it motivates him to get a hold of, the, of Christ's plan for his life. So, brethren, I do not regard myself as having caught a lumbanoed yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead. If you're going to accomplish the caught a lumbano uh, mandate for the Christian way of life, you've got to uh, develop a uh, deliberate, uh, shall we say, selective amnesia. You have to deliberately learn how to forget yesterday. To press on today and be looking towards tomorrow. And this forgetting what lays behind is not simply the failures. All the time in your past that you've messed up, that's part of it. But more importantly, you've got to forget your victories as well. You can't be banking on those. You can't be full of yourself and say, ha, I've arrived. I've made it. Oh, look at me. You know, like, look what happened to Peter when the Lord praised him. And he got, got full of himself. So we forget the good things too. We forget the victories. We forget the whatever we've laid up. Press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So that gives us again a little bit more of a, a vivid uh, understanding of Cata Lombano. The last one then is 1 Thessalonians 5 4. Whoops. That's 1 Timothy. <laughs> If any woman has dependent widows. That had nothing to do with this. Alright, first Thessalonians five four. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day should catalambano you, overtake you like a thief. We are not worried about the coming day of the Lord. We are not at all concerned about being caught up in Armageddon. Because we're going to be raptured seven years prior, and when Armageddon is finally unveiled. We're on the winning side. You are all sons of day, sons of light, sons of day. We're not of the night nor of the darkness. All right, so this is the nature of the demon as described here in Mark. Possessed with the spirit, the spirit seizes him. And then all of the physiological effects are spelled out. Throws him down, foams, grinds, withers. Four different verbs. Throws him down, foams, grinds, and withers. Back to Mark chapter 9. So point three in the outline. Throws him down, foams, grinds, and withers. That's Matthew, uh, Mark 9.18. Whenever it seizes him, it slams him. Slams him. 
Another way to render this actually is uh, rends him, tears him. The foaming, we understand it to be at the mouth, although that's in italics, it's implied rather than understood. Uh, the foaming. Uh, the grinding, we do have the noun for teeth in here, so we understand the teeth. And then stiffens out or withers away. Stiffens out or withers away again. We're looking at physiological effects. We're looking at a human body reacting under the influence and control of this, uh, of this demonic power. And I find it interesting here because it's described as having a purpose clause. The, um, when we glance down to verse 22, it has often thrown him both in the fire and into the water to destroy him. And uh, the verb to destroy there, it's not precisely locked in. It is a purpose clause, but we have to evaluate and consider, is it the demon's purpose? Or is it the boy's purpose? Is the boy trying to maybe bring about his own death so as to destroy the, uh, the, the, the demonic power? That is a, a possibility there in terms of the, the language. Or is it the demon who's doing what he can to bring about the physical death of this boy that he's been tormenting. I think you can take that either way. And I think uh, I tend to go with what the New American Standard had there, that it's the demon's purpose clause. Uh, it's, the, it's the spirit power's purpose clause. But uh, we can at least consider the alternative. All right. Now, these things described here appear to be medical, right? Don't they seem to be symptoms? You know, could a doctor look at this, these activities, and, and think, hmm, this could be epilepsy, right? Now, I mean, even in modern times, even with modern uh, scans and, and tests and blood work and all the kinds of things, the problem is, is that doctors do not, cannot scan for demons. What's the blood test for demons, Right? What's the, uh, the MRI or the CT scan or the PET scan or the, you know, how do you put a demon under a, a, a microscope on a slide or in a Petri dish or something? Let alone, and that's the 21st century medicine. What about first century medicine? What's Dr. Luke supposed to describe here? What, what are uh, Hippocrates and Galen and these guys supposed to figure out? Okay. Interestingly enough, the ancient world was very accepting of demonic powers. and They believed in them. They feared them. They were very superstitious about them. But at least they acknowledged their existence. Modern, uh, of course, society today has no, uh, no room for anything spiritual. Everything is empirical. Everything is what we can observe. Everything is, science is totally, even defines itself as that which can be observed and experimented upon and, and all the rest not even wanting to acknowledge the possibility of something invisible, intangible to uh, the human experience. All right. And Luke's account. Luke's details in Luke 9.39. I'm not going to take the time to go through because it's, it's largely identical to Mark's, although technically we've got more medically descriptive vocabulary, as you would expect, being written by a doctor. The vocabulary is very medical and the handwriting is atrocious. All right, we don't have Luke's handwriting. We have copies of manuscripts and copies of manuscripts. But anyway, Luke 9:39. A man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. He is my monogonese. And a spirit seizes him and suddenly he suddenly screams. Now, how does a mute... Scream. You think about silent scream. Different contexts. And it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth, and only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him. Mauling him as it leaves. I think the uh, intention there is pretty clear that the, the, the demonic power hates the realm of humanity. When they have the chance, they will bring harm to human beings when they are given permission to do so. 
Uh, remember, Satan was, was trying everything he could to afflict Job, and he needed God's permission to do so. And then when he could afflict his body, he had limits where he had to, uh, he, he had to draw the line. He could touch his body, but he couldn't kill him. But he sure wanted to. You think about, if you think about the spirit realm anyway, I mean, the, the realm of, of angels is so much higher than the realm of man. Can you imagine these fallen angels and what they must think about puny, mortal human beings? You know, for instance, when, when you and I stomp on cockroaches, do you feel any compassion or remorse? Well, why not? They're part of God's creation, aren't they? Shouldn't we love these creatures? <laughs> no, they're nasty. I don't know what they were like before the fall, but clearly after the fall, cockroaches need to be stopped. Maybe before the fall, they did something different, but maybe they were beautiful things. I don't know. But after the fall, cockroaches need to be stopped. Or what about rats and mice and other vermin? I think, uh, I think we're vermin as far as the fallen angels are concerned anyway. We're this pathetic realm of existence that is born puny and weak and helpless and uh, dies less than a century later. What a bunch of frail, uh, ridiculous creatures. Think about that. I mean, even if we live a century, even if we live, uh, you know, Mrs. Box lived to be 106 or some that live beyond that, but... What's that? These demons that are still on earth today that were on the earth back in the flood and prior to Adam and Eve in terms of the fallen angels. See, I do distinguish between fallen angels and demons. But anyway, they've, they've been around for millennia. They are eternal. And as they watch the lifespans come and go and they watch humans uh, age and die, how pathetic. So, uh, you know, I don't expect they have much more uh, regard for the realm of humanity than we would, say, one of these insects that live just hours. Fruit flies, they don't live very long. They're just a matter of hours. And, and other species that live maybe a matter of days. And so they're born. They mature within hours. They have babies of their own a few hours after that. And then they die. Okay? That's kind of what we are. Pathetic. But see, this is the thing, and this is why in the arrogance of Satan, who was always exalting himself, always trying to become the God he wasn't, always trying to magnify himself and, and, uh, and, and uh, lift himself up, that's why the whole idea of humbling oneself, the idea that Jesus came, that God the Son came, that, that Yahweh, uh, the Lord God of hosts came, and lowered himself, not simply to the level of an angel. See, when the angel of the Lord walked to the earth, that was one thing. That was God, the Son, deity, in the form of an angel. Angel of the Lord. But he even went lower than that. And he was born in a manger. He was this little tiny, you know, eight-pound, hairless, crying, messy, noisy, smelly runt. I like babies, but they they need to grow up at some point, you know. Messy, noisy, uh, messy and noisy and smelly. See, he humbled himself, came in the form of a man, made for a little while lower than the angels, and you know, to the arrogance and the pride and the evil of of the adversary, it's just unthinkable. Like. You know, would you want to become a cockroach tomorrow? No. Not for a minute. All right. In any event, uh, the vocabulary here is uh, largely identical to Mark's. It's a little bit more uh, clinical, perhaps you would say. Only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. All right, let's talk about the disciples. Under point five. The disciples had previously been given authority to cast out demons and heal the sick. Remember that from Matthew 10.1 and other scriptures? 
So at point five, the disciples, subpoint A. The disciples had previously been given authority to cast out demons and heal the sick. Jesus summoned his twelve disciples, gave them authority. It's a matter of divine sovereignty. Not power, but authority. He did not give them power to cast out demons. He gave them authority to cast out demons. It's not a power issue. It's an authority issue. And yet, when they can't drive this one out, they think it's a power issue. They say, how come we are not powerful enough to do this? Okay, It's not a power issue. It never has been a power issue. It has been an authority issue all along. There's an authority factor in play in this particular kind. So the disciples had previously been given authority to cast out demons and to heal the sick. And really, both sides, the the, uh, demonic angle and the medical angle are in view here. Gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out. There's the one side of the coin. And to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. You see, there's two sides to this. Not just the healing on the medical issues, but the uh, expulsion authority, the uh, you know, exorcism authority, as it were. The, uh, the Latin church developed this office of exorcist that was designed to, uh, to do these kind of things with their spell casting and their incantations and their various uh, superstitious means. No, this is an authority issue when Jesus Christ delegates that to the disciples. But they were unsuccessful in this instance. And all three Gospels record this. Matthew 17, 16, Mark 9, 18b, and Luke 9, 40. And in all three cases, their inability is phrased in a power application. Matthew 17, 16. I brought him to your disciples, and they could not. They did not have power. I brought him to your disciples, and they could not. They could not. Dunamao here. Dunamis. Dynamite. Power. And they had no power for therapy. <laughs> Therapeusi. No power to heal him. I brought them to your disciples and they had no power. It's a power deficiency. No. It's a faith issue. You unbelieving and perverted generation. Same thing in uh, Mark 9. They could not do it. Verse 18. And here's uh, Iscarus, strength. The word for strength. Same thing in the Gospel of Luke. Verse 40, I begged your disciples to cast it out and they could not. Same language as Matthew with dunamai. Alright, so we've got two dunamis and an Iscaros for strength. In all three Gospel records... What the man complains about is a power problem. Lack of power, lack of strength. Dunamis's power, Iskaros' strength. Alright. But is it, is it a power issue? Were they given power to cast out demons or were they given authority to cast out demons? We see very quickly here what, what the Lord is frustrated with is the lack of faith. So under point six, let's look at Jesus' frustration. Now, I think this is useful because um, frustration is normal. Frustration is a circumstance and detail of life. The Father allows frustrations. Frustrations are not sin. The Lord never... All right. God the Father designs situations and circumstances what we call circumstances and details of life. We're supposed to have mastery over those. The Father designates these circumstances of frustration to observe the outworking of our faith. How do we respond in such times? And clearly, we don't want to respond in carnality, although we may respond in anger. Not the same. All right. 
the frustration. Jesus becomes frustrated by his by this or by his, I'm sorry, unbelieving and perverted generation. Mark only has the word unbelieving, but Matthew and Luke combine unbelieving with perverted. I brought him to your disciples and they could not cure him. All three gospel accounts, the, the uh, statement of inability was a frustration. The word can't. Does that ever bug you? Bugs me. And above Jesus. The idea of can't shouldn't be in our vocabulary. We are the people redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ for whom all things are possible. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The word can't has no place in the uh, Christian experience. And so, on all three Gospels, we have here the could not, not powerful enough, not strong enough, can't do it. And it's an attitude that brings about frustration here on the Lord's part, brings about frustration on my part. And I've gotten a little ornery here lately of people that call me on the phone or come and talk to me or whatever and tell me what they can't do. Okay. Then let me grab your Bible here, my big felt marker. I've got some verses I want to just scratch on out of there because you obviously don't believe them. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, you can't. If God has, if his plan is calling for you to walk in a course of obedience, then you can. And, he, and you have to. He expects you to. And he will provide so that you will do so. All right. So we see the frustration here. He calls them unbelieving perverts. Uh, he says he has to put up with them. And then uh, when the man says, if you can, he, uh, he screams out, if you can. What do you mean, if I can? Kind of thing. Now, no sin through any of that, of course. And yet the frustration's pretty clear. Now, unbelieving and perverted. I did not uh, jot down Strong's numbers, and I figure you're going to want to know. Everybody wants to know the Strong's numbers for unbelieving and perverted, right? Unbelieving, opistos, number 571. Put the alpha in front of pistos. And you've got to understand that unbelief is not just simply a lack of belief. That the, the exercise of unbelief is actually an active voice when it takes place. And then uh, perverted. Diastrepho. D-I-A-S-T-R-E-P-H-O, diastrepho, number 1294. Diastrepho, to be turned aside. Let me uh, pull this up as well. Seven occurrences in the New Testament. Diastrepho. King James translates it as perverse four times, pervert twice, and turn away once. To distort or to turn aside. To oppose, to plot against the saving purposes and plans of God. There you go. To turn aside from the right path, to pervert, to corrupt. See, a pervert is somebody that has taken what God has designed and turned it. See, for instance, God designed for the sexual activity between husband and wife in marriage. Well, what sorts of perversions come from that? Anything, everything, anything that turns it aside, anything that takes what God designed for blessing and points it in another direction. Redirects its object or otherwise uh, distorts it, turns it to the left or to the right when God laid it down. And it's not just in the sexual realm. I mean, all kinds of things get perverted. Grace, the grace gets perverted. Grace gets perverted into, into licentiousness. And we're warned about that in, in um, Jude and elsewhere. We don't want to... Uh, how many believers get this grace approach and they pervert it? and say, oh, well, I can do whatever I want to do. It's all grace. No, it's not. Yes, it is all grace, but that doesn't mean you can pervert it and do whatever you want to do. Grace does not equal antinomianism and you just become a law unto yourself. All right. So unbelieving and perverted generation. There's a quite a contrast there. His ministry towards them was one of putting up with them. This really was his ministry. He had a putting up ministry, if you think about it. 
a putting up ministry. How long will I put up with you? How long will I put up with you? It's the words he used. We have to accept it. You know, the... uh, This is almost alien to our uh, our generation. We're having troubles with this these days because it used to be it used to be that the word tolerance or to tolerate uh, meant you put up with something, right? Didn't mean you approved of it. Didn't mean you liked it. Didn't mean you embraced it. And it certainly didn't mean that you validated it or stated that it was okay. You just tolerated it. You put up with it. You recognized, you know what? Um, sin is sin and people are going to do what they're going to do. And, and that's what it is. But now our generation has redefined tolerance to where it no longer means putting up with something. Now it means you have to accept it. Now it means you embrace it. Now it means you validate it. You affirm that it is appropriate or acceptable. That it's simply, you know, it's just an alternate uh, approach. It's an alternative lifestyle or it's, a, it's, a, it's an optional uh, kind of thing. That's where we are. And uh, I don't know that, uh, <laughs> can things like this ever get reversed? Can a generation ever put it back? Can we, can, we, can we take a term and put it back to what it used to mean? Probably not. I think once the term is is hijacked, then it's gone forever. I don't know. <laughs> Ask my wife what her middle name is sometime. All right. But once a term is gone, it's never coming back. So he says putting up with him. Now, this is, I think is, is critical because the Lord does have the patience to do this. And he just wonders how long. <laughs> All right. He knows that he's within the final year. He knows that he's had his last uh, living Passover and that the next Passover will be his passion, will be his work on the cross. And uh, he, the finish line is in sight. And this, I think, is where the, um, the real dangers get worse. Um, part of thinking here in... in uh, Cliff's training, for example, he's been uh, preparing for two years. He has, he's going to start his final year before ordination. And that uh, ought to be about three times as hard as the first two years put together. <laughs> the closer you get to that finish line, see. Well, the Lord is approaching that finish line and the testing is getting worse. The oppressions are getting deeper. The discouragements are getting darker. Uh, his supporters are getting fewer and flakier. <laughs> the few that he has left are uh, starting to get, uh, you know, he's in the upper room the night before the cross and they're all arguing about which one of them is going to be the greatest. <laughs> and he's trying to teach them about humility and, and he wants to go out in the garden and pray. And here they are talking about all the great things they've done. Which one of them is going to be the greatest? So, the frustration grows. And the idea of putting up with them, we need to. We shouldn't have to, but we need to. And uh, that itself becomes rewardable. I'm out of time. We'll, we'll come back to this next week and we'll, we're almost done. We've got six, seven, and eight. And so we'll be able to wrap this up next week pretty quickly and maybe even move on to the next event, 51. Um, Hebrews 13:17 I think goes along with this as well. How long do we put up with? Well, think about it in a, in a marriage, how long do I put up with uh, difficult testing in marriage, an unbelieving spouse or anguish and things that are going on? We should be cooperating. The, 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 the marriage partner should be a blessing. We should be working together towards certain things. But because they're carnal all the time, we can't work together. And so now instead of being you know, heirs together in the, in the Lord that are both contributing towards the glory of Jesus Christ, well, now 
you got a believer that's simply putting up with the other one while they pray for him and intercede and hopefully uh, wait for them to get back in fellowship again. Here we have a, a local church context. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. See, I think that the shepherding in grief is equivalent to the putting up with concept here out of Matthew, is the idea that, you know, they're still going to shepherd, they're still going to pastor, they're still going to minister, even though they're doing so with grief. And it's profitable for them, clearly, but it's not profitable for you. (laughs) As it says, for this would be unprofitable for you. All right. So the idea of putting up with, the idea of ministering uh, when you don't see benefit, ministering when you don't see effects, teaching when you don't see fruit, staying faithful when you're rejected at every turn. And that's where the Lord is, not only with this crowd, but even with the disciples. And we'll talk about that next week when they want to know about the littleness of their faith and what they need to do to increase their faith and, and the things that happen there. All right, two minutes long. I'll make it up to you next week. Father, thank you for this day, for the truth of your word, for the privilege and blessing that it is to study the living and abiding word of God. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.